0: we get started and want to talk about a Hungarian family because that's usually how I spend my Sunday mornings. These are the three Polgar sisters, and I don't know if any of them of you are familiar with the Polgar sisters, but um they are the most prolific chess family in human history. And actually the three ladies are chess grandmasters, which if you are into chess nobody. But that's cool. If you are, that's a really big deal. And it's interesting that you would wonder how one family can have three, but I have to say that it was very purposeful in approach because the Polgar sisters had a father. His name was Laszlo, and Laszlo was an educational psychologist. And he actually lived, you know, back you know, in Eastern Bloc times, so within communist society. And in his research, he became convinced that it is not genius that actually leads to prodigies but actually the formation of them educationally and he developed these theories to the point that basically and remember this was in the communist block period where he basically propositioned a lady said i need you to be my wife so we can have kids who become geniuses like if there was ever a come on that was it you know you must you must date me so we may procreate and make very many chess masters Um, maybe, no. His belief was that of saying, when I looked at the life stories of geniuses, I found the same thing, that they all studied at a young age and studied intensively, and that's what he did. And he really believed that if you could get a child between the ages of three and six and hardwire their brains, that the lessons would affect so that they would grow in knowledge, and it was actually proved proficient. Um, they they were amazing and still are just amazing chess players. It's interesting, I was reading about him this week, and one of the the things was is that, you know, then communism fell and there's these things. So like a billionaire approached him and said, hey, you know, I will pay for you to adopt three third world country kids to see if you can apply that same thing. And he was like, that sounds awesome. And his wife just said, no way in hell, because she's like, I'm not going to raise these kids with you because she remembered how taxing it was for her. But the point is, with everything that they did, they, they understood that there was this uh, genius that was not a talent that they had, you know, that just they were blessed with this, but that they were developed into this. This is something that's tough for us to really recognize because we look at those who are most prolific and we think, well, God just made them that way. I mean, it's true, not everybody can be LeBron James. As much as you and I could practice basketball and maybe growing up our whole lives doing so, you know, you can't design yourself to be, you know, muscular and 6'9", right? Like, some of us just have the gene pool that helps out. But there's not much that separates Maybe us from somebody like Mozart. And as much as we want to say that Mozart was a genius and a prodigy, the reality is is that he spent the, the vast majority of his development years not playing with blocks, but messing around with music. And that's what made him brilliant. What does this all have to do with our study? We're in the study of the book of Ephesians. I think it's important for us to see the basis of a good thought mentality to affect how we move and act within our futures. Last week, if you were with us, um, we talked about the application of the gospel as the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to a church that located in modern-day Turkey, as he was talking to them, he wanted to show them what it meant to be a good Christian. What is the outward expression of that? And we talked about that there was—and when I said outward, what does it look like when we we connect with people outwardly, we develop ourselves inwardly, and we acknowledge our upward spectrum to God? This is what it looks like when you do Christianity— what we're going to read and study about this morning in Ephesians chapter 2 is the true essence then of Christianity. When we call the gospel, the gospel is just an old English word for, for, uh, that is derived that just means good news. Okay, what, does, what is the good news? Because we've seen how we act when we know the good news, but what is it as its essence? And that is what Paul is going to talk about this week. So we are in Ephesians chapter 2. If you have a blue Bible, it is probably in there. If you don't have a blue Bible, you can pull it up digitally, work it through the Googles. Somebody have a blue Bible? Anybody know what page number that is? 827. It's a very good page. Glad that David and Amanda are with us again this week. We're going to make David do something today because he needs to show the outward expression of the gospel through the reading of the word today. We're glad that you're here. David, why don't you start us off, read verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians chapter 2.
1: As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath.
0: So here's the irony for you to really understand the good news. Good news is good, right? Hence it being called good. For you to understand good news, you have to understand the bad part of the news, which is sin. We have to grapple with sin. And that's what Paul says right here. And if you look at the imagery that he brings to the table, it's really, really depressing. Because he says that sin is us being dead to it. It's us following the ways of the world, which is the opposite of the ways of God. We're following the spirit of the disobedient one, which is Satan, right? Not a good thing in the Bible, I love that it talks about the cravings of our flesh. Many of us think of that as a quick trip to graders to get a pint and eat it in one sitting. But when you think even further about the cravings of our flesh, you see this imagery and all throughout scriptures. When we talk about sin, it's supposed to be dark. It's supposed to be something that you don't want to be around. What is sin? And uh, people have interpreted this a long time. I will give you the 17th century interpretation from uh, some good Presbyterians in the Westminster Catechism. It says that sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Even that definition feels sinful, right? You're like, yeah, that's about, right? What, what maybe for us to recognize is that You know, why is this bad? And very plainly for us, sin is the willful disobedience against God. Why is that a problem? Well, it's because God's in charge and you don't want to piss off the guy in charge, right? More so about that it comes down to the character of God. Who is God? And what does sin look like in comparison to him? Psalm chapter 99, verse 9 says, The Lord our God is holy god is holy now recognize this then as we try to contemplate the holiness of god it stands in stark comparison to our sin i even tried within this illustration to give it colors for us to understand that for us to understand holiness it's the purest of white is the without blemish and our sin is dark and you, you you know again we always think within within realms of comparison but just recognize that all of our sin compared to the stark holiness of God is what is so dramatic about this recognize that our sin puts us in rebellion of God and as so the line separates us there can be no intermingling of that Now, I would love to just go preach a whole sermon about sin. And thankfully, Paul doesn't stop here. He keeps going. But one of the things that's very difficult for us to do today as Christians is to even talk about sin. True? Like, usually when you're talking to people about your faith, you don't lead with sin, right? Like, he's like, hey, tell me about your faith. Well, and you're like, let me tell you about sin. No, specifically your sin. And that's the reason why we don't usually traverse within there. Because it's an offensive thing for people, right? Because it kind of uh, brings up conflict. Because usually it's difficult to talk about sin without somebody think that you are just judging them. And this is why people want to talk about Jesus usually in vernaculars today. And they want to talk about faith. But they don't want to talk about sin at all. Because that's the negative aspect. Like, let's keep it positive, And then when they're feeling really good about that, I'll drop, oh, by the way, there's sin. And maybe we'll just move on to heaven somewhere later, right? But to really grapple. With what that means, this is the problem, friends. This is the problem that faith resolves. And by the way, this this rebellion against sin is why uh, when Christian people fall, it's much seedier, isn't it? Like whenever uh, you know. Any time over the past few decades when there's been a scandal involving anybody in the church, it's one of the reasons that the Catholic church scandal will be a reality, something that you will hear the rest of your lives just because of how abhorrent that was and it was carried out, perpetrated by people of faith. Similarly, when Christians do a bad thing, it's brought at a higher light because of who they are. So it's interesting, though, that even though people don't want to talk about sin, we will very quickly address it in other places or situations. True? Like, for example, you know, the example maybe of our lifetime was 9-11. Nobody just said, well, 9-11 was just this big misunderstanding. It was a political action. No, it's very easily and readily labeled as evil, right? Right? Like nobody just says no. 9/11 was just it's just a sad, sad thing. No, it was evil. It was sin that perpetrated that. See, when it's able to be projected upon somebody else, we're all very much fans of calling something else sin. I'll give you maybe maybe a, a little less dramatic example about this. Our electric our, our election season right now, right? Like I, I saw something this week where it was like you know. Certain, they're trying to push the moderators of this week's debate to call out lies, okay? And when we talk about lies, and this is about as political I'll get within the season, it's just like, no, the, the moderator needs to call out Trump's lies, right? Like, that's like this push. And I'm like, you know, this is the problem, friends. It goes both ways. So as much as we can criticize the Donald for his mistruths, even for those of us who find him abhorrent understand that Hillary is not the the perfect on the other side no she also is a liar and he's a liar and maybe more important than any of this the preacher's a liar i'm a liar i'm good at it too Therein lies the problem. It's easy for us to project it upon somebody that we dislike more so than for us to own it ourselves. And that's what Paul does throughout his writings. That's the essence of Christianity. That's Romans chapter 3, 23, the thing that we need to grapple with. When we are dealing with people and talking about the concept of sin, yes, it is difficult because we don't want to indict them, but it's something that we need to own collectively, right? All of us sin. You sin and you're really good at it. Don't worry, I'm probably better at it than you. So it's not about then us coming into sin. If this was just the message of it, it was just don't sin. If this was the message of Christianity, I'm not sure I could buy in. But fortunately, that's not where Paul stops. That's not where the gospel starts. Let's get more to its essence, David, as we read verses 4 and 5 of Ephesians chapter 2.
1: But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ... Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you've been saved.
0: So what we go from in verses 1 through 3 where Paul grapples with the issue. What's the issue? Sin. How is sin resolved? Sin is resolved through grace. It's a very churchy thing, but something that we need to understand. Again, let's go back to the visual. What is the issue with sin? Sin is separation from God, right? It is our inability to engage with the creator of the world because he is holy. We are not. And there's a rift between this. But what does God do in response then? What is grace? Grace is God solving the problem. So as much as we might want to say, you know, again, God's got broad shoulders. So when some of us get just frustrated or angry with him for the the, the fallen world or stuff, we, you know, it's okay to be angry with God. But the issue is, is don't stay in your anger and recognize who he is and recognize that God addresses our sin problem. So he is not distant in trying to make sure that our sin does not keep us from his fellowship. What is this? This is grace. How is grace expressed? Watch what I do here. Boom. One more time. For effect. How does God reach out to the holiness? It's a cross, right? But the visual, and by the way, you know, I would just remember I was in youth ministry in the 1990s. So you were taught how to do this on a chalkboard because there was like this big chasm and that's where the cross goes. And I didn't do that right here, because, but then I mentioned it. So I might as well have just done this. And some of you are like, you know, we're doing this because, you know, some of us are like, okay, I get it. Because I, I, I was at a church one time and, you know, that's what they did and they thought it was awesome. Flannel graph anyone? Okay. Here's the deal. The essence of Christianity, though, is this, right? And we can smile and laugh about it because, oh, yeah, it's so simplistic. But that's the beauty of it, too, Right? The sin problem is something that is cancerous. It's something that will eat us, that will kill us, that will bring about our death. But it is solved by the cross. And that is done by God. Through his son Jesus, when he died for us. So that despite our rebellion, despite our sin, he connects us to his holiness through Jesus. That's Theology 101. That's basic Christianity. That's why this is good news. But then why does it go wrong? I mean, we even read it right here. What is the problem that the world then has with this message? Part of it is because it's an exclusive message, right? So when we say, how do you get right with God? It has nothing to do with you eliminating sin or personal actions or becoming more and more perfect yourself. It has everything to do with Jesus. And that's an exclusive statement. And statements of exclusivity in a pluralistic world are seen as anathema. (laughs) They're just seen. It's just wrong for us to claim something like this. And it does bring then our faith into conflict. But we have to figure out then wh- why does this change? I'll tell you one thing right here. At the end of verse 5, it's just by grace you have been saved. And if you look at the structure of that sentence right there, by grace you have been saved. Saved is a verb in that context. What you see among a lot of Christians today, very Christianese people, is that you saved as a noun, Right? I just remember, you know, and I'm a minister, so I've had this happen to me, which is always peculiar. Somebody says, well, are you saved? And when they say saved, they're really not talking it within as a verb, but they're really talking it as a noun. It's like, are you saved? As if saved is this compartmentalization of my soul that makes everything right. Like if you're saved, then you're part of this group and this group is what should make you feel good. And We have to watch about that is that, again, the, the message of the gospel, the message of sin being uh, absolved through grace is not then so we can feel better about ourselves. It's for us to understand how flawed we are and what Jesus is constantly doing through us. Jesus saves us. It's not that we arrive, he works through us. And that's part of the nature of God himself. This is what God is always doing. He, though he is holy and he should have nothing to do with blemished us, he says, I'm going to figure out a way to bring you into the family. That's Jesus. That's grace. That's the good news. But again, this is what I I love that Paul, he continues to show us the fullness of this. So if you will, David, read verses 6 and 7 of what Paul writes here.
1: And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms of Christ Jesus. In order that, in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed
0: in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So the issue that Christians usually have, if you ask them, why do you believe? You're like, so I can go to heaven. Right? Like, basically, that is a part of this message, right? So that we go from the state of sin, but through grace, get access to heaven. Okay, and just conceptually for you and I, you know, and there's so, we have the fullness of the scriptures to be able to understand at least what that path is supposed to look like. And even though we can't express it, I love how Paul uses the language right here to try to help the Ephesians understand this. Because basically it's very much a kingdom-centered, a, a royalty. It's just like, hey, you get a chance to go hang out in the throne room with God. You get to go hang out with and be part of royalty. And for poor and again in the ancient world, ninety percent of people lived in abject poverty. For for the Ephesians to read that, they're like, wait, 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 wait. We get a chance to like hang out with Caesar, like it it just it it doesn't even compute. Like, we're in America, we have access to the American dream. We can kind of believe, like, you know, if I was just really loaded, I could, you know, maybe you could even contrive some sort of path, you know, to the White House or whatever for yourself. You can imagine that. For them, it wasn't even within the, the framework of their imagination to think that their lives could change so suddenly, and that is what Jesus does for them. Basically, he gives us access to God for eternity in heaven. Something that we can't comprehend fully, right? I don't think about heaven a lot. I really don't because just it hurts my brain because I don't understand it, right? Like I'm like, wait, we'll live forever, but it'll be different. Like I can't I can't comprehend it. All I know is this. If I think about my best day ever, just think about your best day ever right now, right? What was your best day ever? If it's today, good luck. I hope it gets good. Yesterday I ran a marathon. That's what I do. I get a. I, that's what you you brag. You're, you know that's what you do. Like I ran a marathon yesterday. Then I got home. I DVR. You know, went out to eat. Got to spend time with my sister and her husband and kids are awesome. Came back. I taped my game. My team was like up four nothing in the first half. It was like awesome. Like, I, you know, I just went to sleep last night. I was like, that was a good day, right? You know what happens to a good day, though? You fall asleep, and then you wake up, and there's another one. It probably wasn't good as the last. You think about your best day and think, like, somehow heaven is going to be, like, that strung out with no bad days in between. Like, I just don't have the framework to figure this out, right? Like, that's how good heaven is going to be. I cannot understand it. I love that Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians tried to just, you know, say, you know, what is heaven like? He's just like this. Hey, this is what heaven is. Nobody has imagined how amazing heaven is. Like I would just tell you to, you know, just like imagine what the best part of heaven is. You know, it's like like going to like a festival but no carnies. And the rides don't make you sick. And all the funnel cake for free. I don't know. Like, I could start listing this stuff off, right? Like, I don't know what it looks like, but what's funny is is I try to articulate it. I'm not going to be able to land that plane because it's unimaginable. And that is what God is helping us do. Now, here's the challenge within this for you and I. Because then again, when we're talking about the good news, we sometimes want to say, well, what's the point of the gospel? What's so that I can get to heaven? And understand that the gospel is good news for today, not just good news for eternity. So you don't want to, pardon the cliche, be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, correct? Like you need to be above that just saying, no, I follow Jesus because someday I'm going to be in heaven. That's like the value add to this relationship. No, it's much more robust than that. But recognize this too is that, Part of this is that not only does God say, hey, this separation between you and I, it's eliminated. It's not only going to be eliminated now, it's going to be transformed for the rest of your eternity. That you're going to have the opportunity to live with God forever. I don't know what else to do with that. Just chew on that this afternoon. See if it affects the rest of your life. Hey, David, do me a favor. Will you read verses 8 through 10 here?
1: For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good
0: works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Okay, so under all of this stuff then, and here it says, handiwork in the new translation of the NIV, um, also, it says we you know, like we are God's handiwork, we are his workmanship. Like we are reflections of God, and therefore what we need to do then is live while we are here as if this good news has changed our lives, right? So know this we do good things not because the good things save us. Our salvation is in the grace. But our reflection of that are the good things that we do day to day to make sure that on our path to sainthood from ainthood is us doing things better, right? Did you like that one? Yeah, that was from my old notes. That was good stuff. To sainthood from ainthood. Yeah, just chew on that one. Yeah. Okay, so what does this mean then? Because usually when we talk about the gospel and the good news and how our lives are changed in Jesus, many people want to think of this just within a mental construct, right? Like, what do you need to do to go heaven? You need to believe that our belief is central to that. And what Paul is saying right here is that, yes, it's important that you understand the path to grace which comes through Jesus. You need to recognize what that looks like. And again, this is the power of the gospel that was, is amazing. That message is so simple that a child can understand it, but it's so complex that you can spend a lifetime studying the nuances of it and never fully understand what God is doing. That is the beauty of the brilliance of what God is doing through grace. But what we're dealing with here then is then if, if I have this belief and this knowledge, then how does it affect me from day to day? Why is my life any different? And that is because undergirding all of this idea is the idea that then I need to reflect how grateful I am for what God is doing. Now on a geeky, deep theological level, and it's not really that deep, but just to introduce two terms that maybe help make sense of this are the terms orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And when we talk about people's faith, you know, we, we say, do they have an orthodox faith? And, and maybe you've, you're familiar with, like, the Greek Orthodox Church. They talk, it, Basically, orthodox just means the, the, ortho for right, doxy, which is our, uh, our way of thinking, our belief, okay? And here's the thing about this. We want people to believe rightly about the gospel, like, what, how, how are you saved? What does it mean to be saved as a Christian? Is that something that you did to achieve that? No. It's the grace that I have through Jesus because he died for me. So that's thinking about it right. But we don't just want to have an orthodox um, belief in of itself. We also need the orthopraxy. Praxy, uh, Latin for, for, for um, like prac- practice. The things that we do well too. So it's the combination of the two in our lives. It's not just knowing the truth, but it's living out your life as if you know it. And friends, that's why people hate Christians, right? Because many Christians think it's all about believing the right thing. And we talked about this last week with people holding up signs, telling them that they're sinners and going to hell. Why why do we hate that? It's because they might have the right belief, but they're not expressing it like Jesus would want that to be expressed. So it's bringing the two together for us to recognize that this is what it's about. You can raise up a child and give them all this innate knowledge, okay? But for them to become a prodigy, they have to figure out how that is exercised. And similarly for me and you, it's not just enough for us to to have like the biggest Bible or the most robust Bible software so that we can know more trivial facts than anybody knows about our faith. That is all for nothing if we're not acting right. And then similarly, this is what we then need to think about the people that we love who don't believe. Because as much as they might be in a realm where they are, are more philanthropic and benevolent than anyone we know, if they don't have the belief of Jesus, then that is not the way to salvation either. We're not saved through what we do. Our actions are a reflection of what we believe. That's what Paul is saying. He's trying to set up for us how we need to live our lives. What does that mean for me and you? I love how Paul puts it later in, did I put the text in here? I didn't. In Philippians chapter 2 verse 13, Paul writes this, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you. To will and act according to his pr- purpose. It's this phrase right here work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's a weird phrase, right? And you're like, wait, no, 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 no. I'm saved through grace. I'm not supposed to work at this. That's not what Paul is saying, it's not what the gospel says. What the gospel says is that if you really believe Jesus did this, why isn't your whole life a testimony to this? Why can't we see that reflected in what you do? And that's why this is, I believe, the synopsis of all things. Just Don't just think right. Do right. And for some of you, that's the challenge for this week in your lives. Maybe you've known the gospel your entire life. But is that reflected in your actions when you walk around on the streets, when you're dealing with people, you know, do people find you difficult? You're like, well, that's just who I am. You know, like, I'm, I'm edgy. You, you should come to love me for that. Okay. We all have little foibles. But the reality is, is that if you truly believe in what Jesus did for you, then your actions should reflect it. Are your actions reflecting Can people see that Jesus has changed your life? Or maybe you're the other one. Maybe you're just the default good person. Like you look in the mirror, you smile every day, you give yourself a little wink. You're like, I'm I'm a good lady. I'm pretty swell. Maybe you're that person and maybe you haven't ever really wrestled with this idea of what Jesus has done for you. And that's a, a, a total challenge because you have to recognize that it's not about you. The emphasis of all this, it's not about you, it's about what God did for you. The essence of the gospel, who we are, is defined through the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus should define our lives. And that's why, again, every time uh, we worship together, we take communion. And why do we take communion? Um... In just a small way, we do it because that's what the church has done for a few thousand years. When the worshipers come together, they pray, they sang, they studied the word, and they had communion. Another reason is because this is something that Jesus told us to do. He said, listen, when you gather in the future, you're going to need to do this. Why? Why? You know, why and by the way I, I just I, that's a whole other point to a sermon that i'm not going to elaborate right now, but you know Jesus didn't really command us to do a lot of specific things, like he commanded us to do like you know we needed to love, we needed to trust believe we 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 needed to to have good heart and spirit, but he's like, oh, and by the way, communion, this is something you're going to do he didn't launch a lot of commands at us, why did he do that because Jesus, better than anybody, understood that we might be all about our orthopraxy, but sometimes it just needs to come back to recognizing what this is, which is grace-filled life. And that's what we're able to do every week when we come and have communion. This isn't about anything but Jesus. And for you to recognize, through all of your faults and flaws, it's through the cross— you're made whole so that's why i love this time so we get to conclude our worship thinking about grace and thinking about the cross i'll pray we'll pass around the trays if you're a follower of jesus we ask you to take a piece of bread take a cup eat and drink so we can remember the sacrifice of jesus on the cross i'm going to pray we're going to have communion Heavenly Father, as I was working on this text this week, I was kind of unimpressed because sometimes you feel like you're saying things that people have heard before. And this little walk through what it means, what the gospel means, is something that many of us know. Like, there might not—some of us might have come through this not learning a new thing this morning, Father— but for us though, I hope what we're challenged, I hope you use this as a reminder because I think we need to be constantly reminded of what it means to be a follower of you. And that is, is that we are not good enough to achieve our own salvation. That your holiness is so unattainable to us, there's nothing that we can do. We needed Jesus and you provided him. You loved us so much that you came to earth. That you lived life perfectly that you bore our sins in the cross in a brutal, brutal death so that we might dwell with you for eternity. And Father, I ask that that message resonate with us far beyond this time. But in the here and now, you remind us of the cross. You allow us to embrace your grace and to give thanks for what you do in our lives. We give you thanks and we remember you now in Jesus' name. Amen.